What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. I'm going to keep this intro really quick. Today is a Q&A. We're going to go right to the questions. We have a lot of questions. I did a rapid fire style Q&A. I'm going to start by talking a little bit about my knee body dysmorphia and some of the negative thoughts that are actually going through my head during this time, which is probably one of the hardest things about being injured and not being in the gym if I'm being completely transparent, which you will hear me be extremely vulnerable, extremely transparent, and just real. And I don't think enough people are real about the negative shit that we tell ourselves about our body, but I'm going to get into that. And then I go on a rapid fire Q&A where I really just crank out, I think I did like 20 questions short style answers and gave a ton of value and a ton of information. Guys, the only thing I ask of you is if you enjoy this show, if you want to share the show and you want to help me grow this movement so more people around the world can listen, learn, grow, and get better results, the best two things for you to do for me, head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and review, and take a screenshot of this show and share it on your Instagram story and tag me at Cody.BoomBoom. Now, without any further ado, let's jump into the questions. All right, so we're going to do this kind of like a rapid fire. Every time I say rapid fire, it's never rapid fire, but we're going to make it happen this time. So I got a bunch of questions lately from a couple different places, Facebook, Messenger, Instagram, DM, email, just literally just from everywhere. And I just kind of pulled um, like a list 20 I think I got here. And we're just going to crank through these and try to give you guys as much value as possible. So if you guys have questions, obviously, for the podcast you can reach out to me any place, anywhere. All of these questions have specifically been answered individually. So just know, guys, like I do this to provide value to people. My number one mission with this entire thing is really just to help more people. Like honest to God, that's what I do. Um, it's to create impact. And I know a lot of times people want immediate feedback. So I'm never going to read your question and just not answer you and use it on the podcast. I'm going to give you an answer right then and there. And then I'm going to bring it to the podcast if it's a good question. And I'm going to share it with this audience so that they can learn with you. Um, That way everybody gets value, everybody learns, everybody grows, everybody gets better results. That's the goal. So that being said, the reason I'm telling you that is because you can hit me up anywhere, any any place. Um, I'm going to answer your questions. So if you want to hit me up on Instagram, Facebook, email, doesn't matter. I want to help you guys out. That is my goal. So we're going to get right into some questions. First, I kind of categorize these differently. I put the ones that pertain to my knee at the beginning, because I know some of you guys want to be updated with the progress. I actually just got back from the doctor to take out the stitches. Um, things are looking good. I can start PT, which I'm super excited about. I just got off the phone with a physical therapist, and I was like, man, I need to be moving ASAP. I'm going crazy, so <laughs> I'm excited to get that started. But I wanted to hit these questions first because I think they're all just relevant, so it would just be best to answer those first. So let me pull this up. The first question um, we're not going to do any names today, sorry, just because uh, some of them were actually unknown. And some of them came from Instagram, and it's a long story, but I can't really see their name on it because they filled out a little question box, and it's expired now. So um, we're just going to do no names for everybody. But shout out to you for asking a question if, if you're one of these people. So the first question is, uh, can you share some of your workouts during your knee injury? Um, basically... Yes and no. <laughs> right now, they've been non-existent. Yesterday was my first workout in a week, and that's the longest I've probably gone without a workout. Um, and, and to be completely transparent with you guys, I think this is where you know, like, I don't think enough people talk about body dysmorphia and, and what really goes on in your mind. But I would say the biggest struggle for me during this process is the mental games of just telling myself I'm going to shrink, telling myself I'm getting fat, telling myself all these negative thoughts. The reality is I'm not. 
you know, I, I'm going to talk about my diet here in a sec too. Somebody asked about that, but I've gone low carb. I've maintained weight. Um, I'm definitely flat. <laughs> I go look in the mirror and I told Shannon eight times already, I'm losing weight. I'm losing weight. I'm losing muscle. I'm getting skinny. This is bad. Like I need to work out. Um, and it's just a mental game. Like it really does play with you. And I, and I constantly question, when am I going to be able to train again? When am I going to be able to do any of this stuff again? Um, and it's killing me. So I, I, it, I feel the, the pain of a lot of people who go through this body dysmorphia, not only right now, but I mean, that's why I got into all this, honestly. Like, I remember hating the way I looked, and it actually t- took me staring at myself in the mirror, analyzing my body, butt ass naked for the first time, seeing a little bit of stretch marks coming in, and saying, like, dude, what are you doing? I, I don't like what I see right now, and this is not okay. Like, I feel shameful. I feel gu- like guilty to do this to myself. I feel angry for putting myself through this. I feel frustrated and disappointed and hurt that my body is not the living the way it should be. It's, it's overweight. It's lazy. It's unathletic. It has aches and pains. I'm 18 years old at this point. So I was just sad, man. And it, it put me through a bad place and a bad time where I just was somewhat depressed about my body and about the way things were going in my life. And I turned to fitness to change that, obviously. But I remember a period of time just moping and just hating everything because I was just so angry about the the body I was living in. Um, and it's crazy the parallels that come about. Um, I mean, inside the podcast I just did, if you haven't listened to the podcast with Brad Jensen, my good friend and, and nutrition client, fuck, like going through his story of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, jail time, everything he went to, um, really coming about from not loving who he was as a person, self-sabotage, the same kind of stuff that we go through as human beings with losing weight, eating to create comfort and security, right? Skipping the gym, going to the gym, being intimidated by the gym, being insecure, so on and so forth. Like there's so many things going on that create parallels around that. And, you know, like as I'm going through this and and I'm meditating on it, I'm journaling on it. And the last few days, I just, I had to say something on the podcast. I'm going to say something on Instagram. I got to speak out on it because I don't think enough men talk about body dysmorphia, body image issues, and not enough women do either. But the reality of how many people talk down on themselves, the reality of how many people do not like the way they look, do not like the way they feel, are not happy with where they are, it's sad. Um, And it's sad for two reasons. It's sad because, number one, there's a lot of people who rightfully so do not like where they're at. And I say that from a place of experience because I did not like the way I looked. And I think if I didn't acknowledge that, and this is where people have to acknowledge their weaknesses, they have to acknowledge their insecurities, they have to accept these insecurities to move forward. If I didn't look at myself in the mirror and say, Cody, you're getting fat, you're unhealthy, you have so much more potential in this life, your human body is not meant to be doing this, what the fuck are you doing? If I didn't give myself that real talk, I would have never been where I was today. So in one sense of this, Rightfully so, people do not like the way they look, but they need to be challenged and pushed and open up about this insecurity they have because if they don't, they will never open the door to what's possible. Brad went through hell. If he didn't challenge the thought of being capable of changing, being capable of eliminating this drug addiction, being capable of being a business owner and somebody who actually succeeded and actually lived, right? that's, that's the crazy part. Being capable to live life, like literally survive. If he didn't confidently believe in that, if he didn't entertain the thought, 
and also look at himself in the mirror and be like, dude, you're a junkie. What are you doing? He would have never been able to make the changes in order to be where he is today. And I, and I know I'm going on a little bit of a rant now, but my point with all this is that, you know, there's two, like I said, there's two scenarios here. The one is you have to look at yourself and admit these faults, admit these failures, admit what you do not like. Because if you do not admit, you are not self-aware. And if you are not self-aware, you cannot change, right? There's a lot of people out there who do not love what they see, who do not like what they are doing, how they are living, the body they have. But they are not admitting this and they need to be transparent with it. Otherwise, they cannot change. Self-awareness precedes change. Then there's the other category where people – and this is what I'm going through currently. I'm not losing muscle. It's been a fucking week, right? It's been a few weeks since I trained my legs. Are are my muscles on my leg getting smaller? Yes, but studies show that it takes much longer than a few weeks to literally break down and lose muscle tissue. What actually happens with muscle memory is let's say you're hospitalized for two months. Your body depletes glycogen, which means your muscle stores are completely empty. So you're not storing creatine, sodium, water, carbohydrates, anything in the muscle cell. This gives you a very flat and depleted look. You look like you lost weight because you did, right? Then you go back to the gym. So I'm going to be better. I'm going to train. I'm going to do a DEXA before and after to prove this. Then I go back and train. I fuel back up. I'm drinking water. I'm consuming more sodium. I'm on creatine. I am because that's going to help saturate the muscle. I'm going to fuel with carbohydrates, get back to a normal diet. Now my muscle stores are going to fill up. I'm going to have a pump. I'm not going to be flat anymore. And the scale, even on a DEXA, and this is why DEXAs are flawed. This is why all body fat measurements are flawed, body scanners. It's going to show that I have put on five pounds of muscle. No, that's muscle memory. That's muscle glycogen being restored inside the muscle cell, right? So with this process of going through this, my body's fine. I don't look like shit. I'm not fat. I'm not losing or gaining body fat at all, actually, because I'm controlling my diet. But I look in the mirror and I hate what I see. That's the other side of this that's very negative. We have a lot of people who should love what they see because they are leaner than average. They have more muscle than average. They've worked hard as hell to lose fat. They've done so well. They have a good body. But it's not up to quote-unquote top 10 Instagram model status. And because of that, they talk down to themselves. They create negative stories to themselves. They create doubt, fear, scarcity, anxiety, stress, overwhelm, poor relationships with food, poor relationships with exercise. That's why I don't have clients track their calories and exercise burn on uh, my fitness pal. This is an epidemic. It's a problem. And I'm going through that right now to be completely transparent with people. It's hard. It's very hard. It was hard in the past and it's hard right now. But <laughs> this is so far. I think the reason I'm telling you guys this is because I think it just needs to be talked about more. Um, but back to the question <laughs> after that long-winded right hook. Can you share some of your workouts during your knee injury? I don't really have any workouts right now. I'm going in the gym and I'm doing what feels right. So yesterday I did shoulders and upper back. That was the first time I trained in a while. I did uh, seated military press for five sets of 15 to 20. So I'm keeping things light the first time going back in the gym because we got to remember too, my nervous system is pretty smashed right now. I'm still working. I'm not sleeping as well because of my knee. Um, my body is fighting this knee injury and trying to recover. Like that's a tax on the nervous system. So I'm not going to go in and do five by five, crank up the intensity. I'm going to do lower intensity, higher rep, pump work. So I did five sets of 15 to 20. 
on the uh, military press, seated military press with dumbbells. And then I did uh, seated bent row. So I literally sat and then I leaned forward because I can't balance on one leg and do these. And I did bent row, but like driving my elbows outward and up higher. So it's really upper back targeted, mid back to rhomboids. And I did five sets of 15 and 20 on that. Then I did lateral raises for... I think I did four sets of 25, so high, high rep stuff there. And then I did, last but not least, I did bent over reverse flies. Oh, and then I did some curls, so I threw arms in there. But very basic. Today, I think I'm going to run down there. I'm going to do um, some dumbbell bench press, lightweight, high rep again, same thing. I'm going to do some, like, chin-ups because I can hobble over there and do some chin-ups. But I'm basically going to do chest and lats, take a day off, and then repeat. And I'm pretty much just going to do that until I can get into PT. I think I go to PT next week. Once I get the prescription from him, what I'm going to do, I'm going to be going to this strength coach down here in Tacoma. Once I figure out what I'm going to do with the PT, then I can have a better idea of kind of like how to program the rest of my training. Because I, I, I definitely want to make sure that I'm doing not too much and overloading the nervous system during this process. So I can't really share too much about my knee. And here's the thing too is to be fully transparent, I'm not going to share with anybody on any social media, podcast, anything too much specifics about my knee re- rehabilitation. I've already had a few people with similar injuries reach out and ask me what I'm doing. The reality is, is it's individual. I actually have a very rare meniscus tear. I have a bucket handle tear on the lateral meniscus peripheral side. What that means is basically I'm in the 20% of people. And actually, I'm in the rare of the 20%. So 20% of people, 80% of people get a medial meniscus tear, 20% get a lateral meniscus tear. Of that 20%, even less get a bucket handle tear where the, the peripheral, the front part, basically tears and hooks in between the joint. So it's like bent backwards. That's rare too. So I'm in the like minority. So what I do is going to be different than most people. And on top of that, I have different muscles stabilizing my knee. I have different balance. I have different history. Everybody's going to be doing different things. If I come in there and have great ankle mobility, my prescription for training is going to be different than it would be for if I had shitty ankle mobility, right? So like everything is individual and the last thing I want to do is put out like specific information about what's going on, right? So um, I'm not going to be able to share too much training, but right now I'm just doing some upper body work, just really just trying to do what I can. All right, this next question, actually these last two questions have come from the Boom Boom Elite. So guys, if you are not familiar with the Boom Boom Elite, you got to jump in there. This is the place for the smartest training programs online and I stand by that. So I put a lot of effort in those and the most frequent updates. I update those programs nonstop. But, uh, but this is the place, and this is the place where I answer a lot of questions. I go live as much as I can. Usually try to do it every week, answer questions, so on and so forth. This is the place, guys. So um, this is another question from our live Q&A that I did last week. Um, and they, uh, he said, how to have a positive mindset around fat slash weight gain when in a gaining bulking phase? I've never truly bulked because I'm too afraid to gain weight and like being lean. So I probably should answer this question first after that tangent I went on. But the reality is, is I think this comes down to some mental work. Like I don't think there's anything wrong with seeing a therapist. I've recommended clients do that. Um, I've personally seen a therapist. Not many people know that. But um, just to challenge my mind, challenge my thoughts, try to question the doubt and anxiety and fear and scarcity that comes into my mind that I don't feel is actually justified. And what I mean by that is – I'm, I'm, I have reason – I shouldn't say I don't have reason to get anxiety because there's reasons there obviously. But there's, there's no reason why I can't overcome it. There's no reason why I should fall into that and it is not reality. right? Reality is that life is actually really good. There's a lot of positives and that's where I need to head and I think therapy is a great way to work around that. I think therapy is a great way to dig a little bit deeper and find the root causes for these things. 
So I think that's – if it's a serious thing, like your your mindset is really poor and you're really talking yourself down quite often and you feel stuck or alone, like I think maybe you should see a therapist um, or even a coach, right? I'm not a therapist. Coaches aren't therapists. But having somebody in your corner that's guiding you through the process, who understands it, who's been there, who's done these things, who has felt that way, it might be a good benefit because they're going to show you and constantly give you affirmations around the fact that you're okay. You're lean. You're not going to get fat. It's okay to get fat. <laughs> like, okay. I don't mean it's okay to get fat. It's okay to gain weight. It's okay to go this route. It's okay. You're doing the right things. You're not alone. I get it. I understand. Like those things just help. Um, and question your thoughts, right? So that's, that's something to think about. But I think like having a positive mindset comes back to what I was talking about earlier, just admitting what's going on and trying to start there. Once you do that, you can have some more self-awareness behind why these thoughts are even coming about and then understand why you're trying to gain weight in the first place. If you really want to be more muscular, maybe you just take a slower approach. I'm, I'm a big fan of lean gaining compared to bulking and cutting. I think that you know the reality is, is we're not going to gain as much muscle as fast if we do a lean gain phase, but what we will get is muscle over the long term at a slower rate without as much fat accumulation. I look at it like this. If you're somebody who knows they're going to be lifting for the next two years, then why not go with a lean gaining approach? You know, you're, you're going to go slower, but the reality is, is you're going to be lifting anyway. You're going to be in this nutrition game anyway. Why not do it the way that allows you to have less negative thoughts going in your head about gaining weight or worrying about your weight? Right, Do what's going to keep you mentally sane the most, and if you know you're going to be lifting for the long term, go with the lean gaining phase. Bulking and cutting does not need to be the way, so you don't need to truly bulk, quote-unquote. Um, and remember that like, if you're an advanced lifter, I think people forget about this too. Like, If you're an advanced lifter, you know, one pound a month is really, really good. So when you're only gaining a pound a month, it's easier to cope with because that's only a quarter pound a week. You're not gaining at rapid rates. It's easier to cope with that along the way. So just take a slower approach. And if you don't have a coach, if you don't have a therapist, you don't have somebody in your corner to talk to and just – even if they don't give you answers behind what's going on in your head, just somebody to voice it to I think is really important. What's your daily diet look like? Um, right now, I am intuitively eating and I just got done – well, I didn't just get done. I'm still in the process of an elimination diet. So – Right when I injured myself, I decided to go into elimination diet. Me and Shannon actually did it together um, just to kind of clear up some gut stress and really just focus on anti-inflammation for my knee to heal quicker. And I do think it's helping. Um, I cut out processed food. Cut out I basically went paleo. I didn't go full elimination. A true elimination diet can be like AIP, autoimmune protocol, paleo diet. That's going to be like you're even taking out nightshades. You're taking out um, – coffee you're taking out eggs and the reality is i love coffee too much i've removed eggs previously just recently for a long period of time and still saw no uh benefit or aid or help or advantage from taking it out as far as like my eczema digestion um everything right so i decided to cut other things out and i kind of felt like the culprit was either going to be dairy whey protein or like grains um I still eat oats, gluten-free oats and, and white rice quite a bit, but I haven't added much dairy. I added whey first, so I just added whey back in literally two days ago, and 
the first day, my stomach was kind of a wreck. And I questioned it, though, because I had a ton of veggies at dinner, which caused some bloat. When you eat a ton of roasted broccoli or carrots or Brussels sprouts or anything cruciferous with a lot of fiber, you're going to have some gut stress. It's, it's normal. Um, sometimes it's worth it if it's a good meal. So I, didn't, I, I kind of let that just be day one and not really stress it too much. I couldn't blame it on the way. So yesterday – kept things pretty moderate um, and, and controlled, and I had whey again, and I didn't have any issues after it, which surprised me because I thought for sure I was going to have issues with whey. So now I'm kind of waiting. Um, I'm going to add back in other forms of dairy soon. I'll probably start with butter because I love butter and then go with like a cottage cheese or something like that. And then after that, last but not least, I'm going to add in rice and then oats and see what happens. Right now I'm keeping carbs super low, so I'm not really too in too much of a hurry to add those those carbs back in to see if they fit because at the end of the day, I'm trying to keep carbs low. The reason I'm trying to keep carbs low is because carbs can cause – I shouldn't say cause inflammation, but the reality is is carbs are kind of like a scaled nutrient. We have our bare minimum needs for protein and fat. Right now, I'm getting at least one gram per pound, probably a little bit more because during injury, it might be advantageous to consume more amino acids, to consume more protein. There's been studies that kind of allude to this. And basically the whole idea is that protein and amino acids are the building blocks that essentially their job is to rebuild tissue. I have some tissue issues going on in my knee right now. So if we can rehabilitate those tissues um, and having that extra protein is going to keep me, keep me satiated while going low carb. And last but not least, help me maintain muscle while my activity is down so low. Um, so I'm keeping carbs low because I'm just not training. There's just no real need for them. And I actually feel really good being low carb. And I'm a, I'm a high carb guy normally. But the reality is, is I'm just not training. So it's just not worth having a ton of carbs. Um, but I did bump my fat up and I'm consuming some more anti-inflammation based fats. I'm consuming grass-fed beef more regularly, grass-fed steaks more regularly, um, keeping my fish oil high. I'm adding in collagen quite a bit, like two servings a day. Um, the only fruit I'm having is... I will have apples just because I'm addicted to Honeycrisp apples, um, but usually it's blueberries. Blueberries are pretty good for anti-inflammation. I've added like curcumin, extra garlic. Um, I started cooking with olive oil when I usually cook with coconut oil, but um, olive oil is good for anti-inflammation, so I'm kind of rotating those. But the big point there is I'm, I'm staying on a pretty high-fat, high-protein, low-carb diet, focusing on being intuitive with my, my appetite and just really focusing on getting as much whole foods, keeping it really clean pretty paleo and just focusing on anti-inflammation right now after this I'll, I'll tweak things as i start training again and stuff how long does it take to recover from hpa axis dysfunction this is a tough one um so tough that i can't really answer it to be honest with you it, it's all depends like what i like to tell people with reverse dieting is you know like it takes it can take as long as it took to create so we got to remember like if you dieted, if you were in a chronic deficit and overly taxed, overly stressed, under-recovered state for a full year, we could be working on this for a year, potentially more, just to fix it. So we got to remember that it always takes longer if you've been in that state for longer. The longer you've been in a APA, HPA axis dysfunction, quote-unquote adrenal fatigue, the longer you've been under-recovered and kind of been in what we call this recovery debt – the worse it's going to be, the harder it's going to be to recover, the longer it's going to take to recover, right? So that's one thing. Next thing, if you're a female, it's probably going to take longer, um, unfortunately. Females do not have as resilient of hormones as men do. Um, so usually reverse dieting, any hormonal issues are usually either worse or just harder to um, remedy 
for females than they are for males. That's just, it's just the way it is. It's unfortunate for women and I'm sorry, but that's the reality. Um, so it really depends. Uh, your best bet is just going to be, be patient, focus on health and just not worry about body composition and performance. Like really focus on health, sleep, positive mindset, relaxation, having fun with friends, like those things that are actually going to relieve your stress are actually going to create more parasympathetic dominance. And that's what you want. You want to be in a parasympathetic as much as you possibly can and sympathetic as little as you can. So lowering anything that causes stress, like you really, really have to focus on this. Um, and you have to think long term because if you're in a place where you're, you're only focused on body composition and performance, you're going to get screwed because you're not going to reach those goals until this is fixed. And it's very, very hard to go through. I've taken a lot of clients through this situation of reverse dieting, and it's just not easy. But you have to get your calories up. You have to get your sleep in. Um, ideally, eight to nine hours if you have true HPA axis dysfunction um, you, at night. You have to get your water in, get quality nutrients in. You have to eat enough carbohydrates so your body is replenishing glycogen stores and actually limiting cortisol production. You have to eliminate stresses. You have to have fun more. You have to lower your stress. It's just it has to be about health. I really suck at setting and sticking to goals, especially in business and health. Any tips? Um, tip number one, get a coach or a mentor. Um, nine times out of ten, people can set goals, but they can't stick to those goals because they're just not held accountable. Whether we're talking about fat loss, getting healthy, building muscle, building a business, it doesn't matter. There's a coach for everything now, and I think it's rightfully so. The reality is, is coaching is priceless because accountability is the glue that holds all the methods, all the tools, all the strategies, all the work together and allows you to actually be consistent enough to see success. Any realm we bring up, consistency is the key. No matter what, if you are not consistent with what you're doing, it is pointless and it is not going to work long term. And that's the reality. Success is not about now. It's about the future. It's about the long term. So you need to be consistent. Best way to get consistent, get accountable. So my first tip for you is going to be have a coach that helps you guide these things. Now, after that, I would probably reverse engineer from a year point. Don't think – I mean I shouldn't say don't think three-year, five-year. I think that's important to have an idea. But I'll be honest with you. We're, we're scaling the business. We are growing things. We are reaching more and more people. We are hiring coaches. I'm bringing on another intern soon. Like, we're do, like we just brought on Lisa. So shout out to Lisa. I haven't given her enough kudos. She did my nutrition um, right before this injury. She's coaching people on our team. She's unbelievable coach, highly qualified, becoming more qualified. She studies and reads and educates herself more than damn near anybody I know. It's, it actually blows my mind. Um, Love Lisa to death. Um, she's somebody we just brought on the team. But anyway, we're growing. We're doing these things. And three years ago when I made a three-year plan, it wasn't what it looks like today. Um, it was smaller than I would have imagined. It was different than what I would have imagined, so on and so forth. Three years ago, I thought I would have been alone doing this. Um, I didn't think it would be as big as it is. I didn't think I'd have the potential I have. I didn't believe in what I could have built. Um, and I think that's just part of the growth. As you grow, you realize what's out there. You realize the potential of things. So I think it's good to have a rough estimate idea of where you want to be in three, five, and ten years. But they should just be like ideas. Put it on paper. Be like, this would be cool. This is how I want to live. More importantly, where do I want to be in a year? That's where we need to focus. So you start by building a year-long goal. From there, you break that down into quarterly goals. So where am I going to go every three months? From there, you break down a monthly and a two-month benchmark. So if I have a three-month goal, a 90-day goal, a quarterly outcome, I can break that up into 30- and 60-day benchmarks to get me to that goal. So now I'm thinking monthly. 
After that, I break down weekly goals and tasks and action steps to fill my week with productive steps to build whatever I'm trying to build, my body, my health, my business, my relationships, anything. After that, we look at daily habits, routines, action steps, so on and so forth. So now we've taken a year, gone to quarters, gone to months, gone to weeks, gone to days. That's how you set up serious goals because instead of me just saying in a year I'm going to be here, no. In a year I am going to be here but tomorrow I'm going to be here because I know so meticulously what I am doing. Right? This is a big thing that we focus on at the Mastermind, setting these smaller goals because these smaller goals lead to the big goals. And they're easier to see. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. We can get real with it. Um, so that's going to be huge. Um, so those are my two tips, man. I would just say get a mentor, get a coach that's going to help you stay accountable and give you good ideas and, and honestly push you to set bigger targets because a lot of times we sell ourselves short um, in every area of our life. We don't believe in ourselves enough and oftentimes a coach steps in and actually believes in us more than we believe in ourselves, which is unfortunate but fortunate in the sense that we can find coaches to help us do that. Find a coach, find a mentor, find a leader, somebody that's going to help you and then set goals from a year, quarter, month, week, day. That's how you get to your goals. That's how you stick to things. That's how you set goals for success and uh, make shit happen. Thoughts on glucose disposal agents. It's funny because on my story, so if anybody doesn't know, a glucose disposal agent, a GDA, is a supplement that allows the body to dispose of glucose a little bit more efficiently. And when we say dispose, we mean transfer glucose, a.k.a. carbohydrates, into the muscle cell. Instead of storing them as fat. So it essentially creates an insulin sensitivity response that allows you to be become more insulin sensitive so we can use these carbohydrates to build muscle, store for performance and recovery rather than storing them as fat or anything else. I'm a bro at heart. I grew up in bodybuilding, reading magazines and forums and training like that and, and just eat, sleeping, breathing, thinking, dreaming, <laughs> everything muscle, fat loss like that, right? So to me, I want glucose disposal agents to work so much better and have so much more validity than they actually do. The reality is, is like chromium and cinnamon and all these different glucose disposal agents, they don't have a very significant effect. Do they have an effect on insulin? Absolutely. The amount you need of each is pretty high and it's very rare to find a glucose disposal agent on the, the supplement market that actually has enough in one capsule of all these different things to supply an insulin response that is actually worthy and not just completely splitting hairs, even worse than splitting hairs. So it's not something to really consider too much of. If I have a person who is insulin resistant, maybe has PCOS or is a physique athlete who might actually compete, that's a person that I might suggest doing some glucose disposal agents, putting more cinnamon on their food or taking something specific like berberine. Berberine is a glucose disposal agent. It's a natural supplement, but it is something that's actually been shown to be as strong as metformin, which is a pharmaceutical prescription-only supplement um, for diabetics that completely helps insulin. So berberine is probably going to be your best legal bet, but it's still, I, I believe, in the like 5%, right? Like if you really want to spend extra money on supplements, if you or have like extreme aspirations of being a physique athlete or you have some insulin resistance, be that from PCOS, menopause, or just because you are overweight and you want to focus on the 5% and it's time to focus on the 5%, I would go for it. But it's usually last on my list of recommendations. Tips to improve ankle mobility. Struggled with lack of flexibility my whole life. I The tip I gave them, the specific tip was 
um, spell the alphabet with your, this is something I'm doing right now, spell the alphabet with your ankles every day. So when you're sitting at your desk working, you're watching TV, sit there and spell the alphabet like with your feet, like literally do the shapes of every letter. It's 26 letters and you will go through the alphabet and you will basically create every range of motion your ankle is, can possibly create. That's going to help quite a bit um, just because you're getting ranges of motion. Um, I'm a big fan of like Z-Flex. You can look that up, Z-Flex ankle flexion. So you're basically trying to drive the top of your foot to the floor um, going into extreme plantar flexion, really stretching out the top of your foot, top of your ankle, into your shin. That's going to help a lot. Um, just basic half kneeling ankle mobility where you're just grabbing your knee, grabbing your ankle, and you're doing big circles or figure eights with your ankle because it's a ball and socket joint. That's going to help. The biggest thing here is like you're not going to get mobility in a day. So if you want to get mobile in any joint, your best bet is going to be doing mobility for it every single day. That's why I like spelling the alphabet because it forces you to do all the ranges of motion that your ankle can create every single day. So my suggestion for tips on ankle mobility is do the motions, do figure eights, do the alphabet, get in a half kneeling position and move it before every single training session or every single day under your desk. Do that for two months and then watch your ankle mobility improve um, and you'll notice a big difference. Um, and then like I would test this. So test your squat um, without heel raises and then you can kind of test that every month and see where you're at. But that's going to be the best thing. It's just like ankle mobility is really simple. You don't need crazy shit. You need movement and you need frequent movement. So just make sure you're doing it daily. Don't worry so much about the complex mobility drills. Just do shit daily. That's like the biggest thing to be honest with you. Hey guys, I wanted to take a brief moment to remind you about the Boom Boom Elite, our membership site. This is literally the perfect place for you. The reason I know this is because you're listening to this podcast and anybody who listens to this podcast is a go-getter and an action taker. You are a person who is seeking information and education to better your body, better your performance, and finally transform your physique. I know this because people listening to this podcast really just seek results. And the one way to get better results is better training programs, but not only intelligently designed programs that actually build in progressions and avoid injuries along the way, but a place that's actually going to teach you how those programs are built. See, a lot of coaches and clients alike have insecurities about what they're putting on the piece of paper. Whether you're programming for yourself or you're programming for your clients, you probably have an insecurity or a lack of confidence in the programs you are creating. You probably question yourself. Are these programs actually going to work? Am I going to get injured along the way? When a plateau happens because it's bound to happen, what do I do? How do I adjust? How do I move through this plateau and finally start seeing results again? See, the Boom Boom Elite is not only a place to give you the programs that avoid these things and actually give you results, have built-in progressions, and make sure that you're not getting injured along the way, but it's a place that's going to educate you on how those things are actually built into the programs. So now, you have longevity in your results. You can actually adhere to them because you know what the hell is going on behind the scenes, and you can start creating your own programs that actually work, and you have the confidence to know that they will work. So next time you put whatever you put on the piece of paper, you and your clients are confident and feel comfortable and actually believe in the system. Not to mention they're actually going to get results, which is the reason why we do this in the first place. So because you're listening to this podcast and because I know you're perfect for this, I wanted to take a second to just remind you about the membership site because this is the place that I spend every single day communicating with the environment, communicating with the community about training, about nutrition, about supplementation, about all the things that go inside of coaching. So if you want access to the Boom Boom Elite, click the link in the description below, 
go, or go to boomboomperformance.com slash elite and sign up today. And without any further ado, let's get back onto this podcast. Take a swig of my coffee and collagen and stevia. I've been making sure to double down on collagen. If, if you didn't know, little tip, surgery tip, when they recover ligaments and stuff like that, like my meniscus, they stitch it up. They actually rely on my body to create extra collagen to form and bind those stitches together. So it's almost like a spider web that starts to overcome the ligament and it creates these these basically bandages, these extra stitches, but they form and form and form until they're grooved in, in kind of a straight line over the cut, over the stitch, over the tear, um, until it's really bound tight and secure. That takes some time, but collagen is one of the best things to help with that. Not only the collagen your body produces, but also what you can consume because it's just going to aid in that. So really big tip for anybody going through uh, meniscus, ACL, anything like that. Is starvation mode a real thing? Some coaches say it's a myth. What's your take on this? Really good question. The reality is, is I would say if we look at science, no, it's not a myth. Um, star- like the best example is if you look at like if you look at people in a, a third world country who literally are starving um, and their skin and bones. It's like the saddest thing in the world. They didn't like they weren't at a point where they haven't eaten in seven days and they still had a bunch of body fat because their metabolism was slow and they had thyroid dysfunction so they couldn't lose weight. They starved. So to get to starvation mode, you literally have to go so far beyond what anybody listening to this podcast is going past. It's just impossible. So starvation mode's not really a thing. I think what why people get confused is because, you know, Hormonal deficiencies, dysfunctions from your thyroid, your nervous system, testosterone, metabolism, all these things can slow down as we diet, as we create more stress, as we harm our body. We all know this. I've talked about reverse dieting a million times. What happens is our metabolism slows down so much that our new set point, our new maintenance is so low, we have to get past that. People don't realize they're like, I'm at 1,200 calories and I can't lose weight. Well, your metabolism has just slowed down so much. Your thyroid, your, your hormonal dysfunction is so bad that you would probably have to eat like 800 to 1,000 calories to lose any weight. But that's physically impossible for you. You can't survive. You can't maintain. You can't adhere to that. And you shouldn't because that's really, really unhealthy. But you have to get to that point. So your body's not in starvation mode. Your metabolism is just so dysfunctional at the moment and adapted to a low set point that you really can't adhere to anything lower that will actually significantly show fat loss. So you have to go through a repair and reverse diet um, so that you can get to a point where you can lose weight again. So no, I wouldn't say starvation mode is technically a thing. I think it's just a term that people use. It's, It's like the fat burning zone on the cardio machine, right? We know that that's not really a thing or the hypertrophy zone, like eight to 12 reps is like the only way to build muscle. Not really true because as as long as volume is equated, you're going to build muscle no matter what. I find that eight to 12 rep range is actually probably best because it's in the right intensity zone, but it's still, you can still make just as much muscle by doing sets of three. It'll just be a lot harder and take a lot longer. Um, yeah, and like the tone zone and all that shit. Like it's just, yeah, I would say it's probably not a thing. I think that metabolisms and hormonal adaptations cause your body to fight back and stop burning fat at a lower set point than you would ever imagine. You're not starving. You're just dysfunctional. I think that's, that's kind of the key there. And I would look into this. I mean, there's a lot of good science coming out about how that's not necessarily true and what's really going on, but we had, we'd have to do a whole podcast on that. Can you discuss a, around 
a caloric deficit being too small to encourage fat loss. I have heard it mentioned before that it, if the initial deficit isn't large enough, the body can't adapt with losing fat. Yeah, I think everybody's different in this scenario though. Um, you know, most men should be able to go like 12 times their body weight and see fat loss. But a lot of people put 12 times their body weight in, cal- uh, in a calculator and they're like, oh, fuck. I'm not even eating that and I'm not losing weight. So we have to start there and that kind of goes back to what I was just talking about. But let's say in a perfect world, you know, somebody has died in the past. They've done different things um, or their body just has that threshold. Most people have this threshold. Sometimes – and I think it's just very variable, right? There's so much variability and individualization in this that some people and, – and you know like you make an adjustment and it's like 5 to 10 percent of a deficit and usually that will kickstart fat loss. We create a 5 to 10 percent deficit. We're going to see some fat um, and that's going to be much more sustainable because it's a smaller deficit. And for some people, I have a, cl- a client I'm thinking of right now who I created a very small deficit with and we haven't touched it in two months and it's literally just week after week. About three quarters of a pound to a full pound every week, every single week. And is it is that slow? Yeah, sure. But it's a good – it's a 0.5% of her body weight. So it's half a percent of her body weight at least per week. And over the course of two months, that's eight pounds almost. You know what I mean? So it is chipping away and she wants to keep muscle, keep her hormones healthy, keep her performance up. So it's important to do it that way. Other people, you create a 5 to 10% deficit and it does nothing but frustrate them because now they're eating less and not seeing any results. So – that's a sign where they just need a more aggressive approach, whether that be because their body is more resilient. Um, that's their threshold. Like I know for me personally, and I've talked about this on the podcast, I can cut a little bit and I won't see shit. But if I don't cut past a certain point of calories, I won't see any weight loss. Like I usually have to drop below 1,800 calories and then fat loss is just like week after week after week and it's very successful. Um, above that, it's super slow if not non-existent. No matter even if I bring my calories up super high to 3,000, let's say, and I'm maintaining my weight, it doesn't matter. So everybody's just different. Um, so that is actually a thing, 100%. Um, there can be deficits too small to encourage fat loss. Um, sometimes you need to take a, a more aggressive approach. I think the important thing for people to remember is the bigger the deficit, the more stressful on the body. So some people need that big deficit in order to see changes. But it's even more important for those people to take diet breaks, have multiple refeeds per week, things like that to make sure they're maintaining their hormonal and metabolic system. If one is cutting for vacation, would you reverse out a bit prior to leaving for vacation? I assume just jumping from a deficit to a possible week of splurging wouldn't be the best idea and would cause accelerated fat gain. Yes and no. Um, I probably – Honestly, I wouldn't unless the vacation was over a month long. I don't, I don't see the point. I think that the reality is if vacation is you know two to seven days, so a weekend all the way up to a week long, you can look at that like a diet break. What I would say is manage fat intake. So a lot of people go on these, these vacations and they eat their protein. They, try, they get more carbohydrates in obviously and that's okay because during a refeed or diet break, the carbohydrates are what really are going to be beneficial because that helps spike leptin, ghrelin, helps your metabolism. That gives you the purpose of a diet break. But what they don't understand is they're eating out, they're eating snack food and all those things have a lot of fat too and it's not always the healthiest fat. So their fat ends up going through the roof as well. That's what causes weight gain, um, negative weight gain during vacation. So – I would just encourage people to either A, let's if you can track while you go, if you're really serious, track while you go and just stay around your maintenance calories and hit your protein every day. Treat it like a diet break when you come home, go right back on the diet. Even if you're at your goal weight, come home, you're going to be a little bloated from vacation, get back on your diet for a week and then we start the reverse diet process. Um, or just be intuitively smart about 
your fat intake while you're there. Let carbs go higher. Try to hit your protein and just aim for low-fat options, especially when you have control over it because when you don't have control and you go out to eat or you have drinks, I would count that as fat. That is not going to be advantageous. So um, I probably wouldn't reverse before a vacation unless it's a very, very long vacation. And if it's a very, very long vacation, you need to be, have some like serious intuitive habits before you go or you're probably just going to lose all the progress you made if you just treat it like a free-for-all for a month. After a mini cut, do you do a refeed or do you go back to your previous diet? You go right back to your previous diet. Um, if a true mini cut is done, it should only be four to eight weeks long at most. Um, so if you're just doing a mini cut and, – and the reality is, is a mini cut should be one of those things that you've been sitting at maintenance for quite a long time or you've been in a surplus trying to gain muscle for a while and you have an event where you just want to shave off a few pounds. You do a mini cut for four to eight weeks. You get as lean as you possibly can in that short time period but it's not long enough to see serious hormonal adaptations and because of that, you should be fine going right back to your maintenance level calories as normal. Um, you don't really need a refeed during a mini cut. You don't really need a mini cut or refeed after the mini cut. You just literally go back to your previous diet, have maintenance or whatever, um, so that you can just carry on. It's not long enough to have hormonal damage. You should treat it like I think Lane Norton says, treat it like war, right? Treat it like battle. Get in, do damage, get out. So get in, cut it up, get the hell out. Simple as that. Do you always recommend a refeed meal when you reverse diet people? Oh, that's funny. That's a related question. I know those back to back. Do you always recommend a refeed meal when you reverse diet people? Not always. Um, most of the time, no. We got to remember that a single day of refeeding is not really going to create any hormonal advantage. Um, you need to have 48 hours or more. So only two days all the way up to like 14 days. So a full diet break, which was going to be 7, 10 or 14 days, let's say. Um, that's going to see some, some advantages. That's going to be beneficial to your hormones. Um, when reverse dieting, our goal is to repair hormones to fix dysfunction, which means we want our total daily intake to be up. So yes, you could have a refeed, but I, I rarely ever do a refeed unless the person is just adheres better if they have that. My goal is to bring up calories on their non-refeed days because we need to get their daily intake every single day throughout the week higher, period. So for most people, what I'm going to do is actually – Either A, just start bringing up every day of the week in their calories or B, I'm going to add two refeeds a week and the main purpose there is to kind of kickstart their metabolism. So if we go into reverse, I might just say like, hey, instead of you know going right into it because I know you have some insecurity or some fear or some scarcity or so you're just nervous about the reverse diet, we're going to like keep the, the reverse diet very simple. I might add just 5, 10 grams carbs, very, very minimal, not going to do much at all. But two days a week, we're going to do a 48-hour refeed where you do have maintenance calories. You're going to eat way more carbs. That's going to create the reverse diet, quote-unquote, effect hormonally that I need to see right away because we need to get aggressive with your health, right? Um, but that's not always how I do it. So it's either one of the two. It's never a single refeed meal. Um, and I would never even say refeed meal. It's always a refeed day because one meal is not going to do anything. Um, that's just a cheat meal. Do you always recommend refeed meals when you reverse diet people? Rarely ever. If I do, it's 48 hours. Um, otherwise, my main goal is to create higher caloric intakes across the board to actually start facilitating uh, proper hormonal adaptation repair, essentially. And I hate to say the word repair like it's damaged, but you have dysfunction, so we're trying to create function. Getting started as a personal trainer, what are your top five tips? Um, 
Number one is going to be find a mentor or a coach. Hire somebody to do your training. Like you, I, I can't tell you how much I learned from just working with different people in the industry. I mean I've hired so many different big names and small names that I knew throughout the industry just to see how they program, how they coach, how they update, how they communicate. And I take notes over the years, right? That's a huge one. So hire a coach, hire a mentor if you can. I think somebody who can mentor you through the process is going to be even better, even if they're your coach and they'll just allow you to quiz them and ask questions. Number two, have a study period every day. You should have 20 all the way up to 60, so up to an hour, but at least 20 minutes a day where it's non-negotiable. You read something on training and nutrition, no matter what. Blog, video, I wouldn't even say video. I would say blog or book. Like keep it reading and then while you're driving and stuff, that's when you listen to podcasts, videos on audio and stuff like that to just study. But every day you should have a blog for studying. Number three would be create content. Um, I think no matter where you're at, even if you're a brand new beginner, I think you have knowledge to provide to the person who knows nothing about training and nutrition. And the best way for you to extract and retain knowledge that you're studying is to create with it. So teach people through Instagram, Facebook, blogs, anything you can do. Just create content with what you're learning. Number four is going to be join a gym that is not a big box gym. I think if you can put yourself in a culture, in a community of people who are like into strength training, I think you're just going to gain so much experience and have so much more fun and just fall in love with what training is really about. If there's one thing I ever miss about you know, not having my own business or like being a beginner. It's just training with fucking people who just want to grind in the gym just every day, like a group of dudes that just wanted to just crush iron. Like it sounds weird, but if there's anything I miss about being a beginner, it's, it's that very thing. Um, and the number five would be network. Go to as many workshops, seminars. Um, by the way, if you're in the Washington area or Oregon and you want to drive up um, or Idaho and you want to drive over or Vancouver and you want to drive down, Anywhere around Washington, if you want to come see me live, Sam Miller, the seminar, the Elite Level Coaching Seminar, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. You can do that now. Um, Still got seats left. We're trying to fill that bitch up, and I'm super pumped to give my presentation on program design. I'm actually really excited to hear Sam's uh, presentation on nutritional science applied so we can learn more about hormones, nutrition, dieting, macros, everything you could think of with nutrition and how it's going to affect your body, your client's bodies, the results, periodizing it, everything he's going over. And then that exact same thing, training science applied to the general population, your clients, yourself. That's what I'm going over. I'm super, super excited. We're both people who get very hands-on. So it's going to be a very tight-knit seminar where we're really helping you navigate through things. We'll spend time doing a Q&A at the end. So I'm super excited for that. If you want to join us, please do. Uh, link is in the description. But that would be my last one. My last tip would be network. I can't tell you how many seminars and workshops and just things I did over the years to just meet people and learn from other people. Everybody has a different way of doing things. I think it's very important to learn. Can you build muscle on a full body program? I feel like some people say it's the best because the oldies did it and others swear it's the worst. Where do you stand? Here's where I stand. I personally believe that full body is not the most advantageous for building muscle. The reason I don't think so is because science just shows it's not. I mean if we look at the literature on volume, intensity, frequency, um, volume is the key driver for hypertrophy. Frequency is going to be the way we set up our training programs. And This is going to be something I go heavily into at the seminar but 
it's just hard to get enough volume without completely smashing your nervous system or repetitively doing movement patterns that can create stress on your joints doing a full body program. And this is coming from somebody that I actually like full body programming better. I have more fun with a full body program. It gets my heart rate up. It keeps me moving. It's a lot of variety. That's what I love. It's just fun to me. But the problem is, is it can be really hard to create enough volume. Either A, your sessions are super long or B, you're training four, five, six days a week doing full body every time. And it's almost like repetitiveness on certain movement patterns for your joints. Now, that's not for everybody, but for some people, overuse injuries is just a little bit more. Whereas if I do a leg day on Monday and I cannot do legs again until Thursday, that gives me two days to really recover, which is optimal, especially from a joint perspective. So I think that upper lower splits, um, push pull legs, upper lower push pull legs, um, upper lower, upper lower, upper lower. Um, you can even do posterior anterior. So like a full body push pull. I think that's more advantageous for building muscle. So like day one, you're doing like a bench, a squat, triceps so like chest shoulders delts quads and then day two you're doing a glute hamstring row pull down bicep so basically all pulling movements and you alternate those back and forth either four days or six days a week i've had fun on those um so push pull full body is great too Uh, but a general full body where you're doing a little bit of everything i think is great for strength uh, because repeating certain movement patterns is more of a skill acquisition and that's very important for building strength from a neurological standpoint so for power lifters i like a dup like bench three times a week squat three times a week i think that's huge deadlift twice a week just to keep your lumbar safe and then do accessory week work throughout the week as you can um but i think for building muscle i do think an upper lower a push pull legs um, or a variation of the combo of the two or last but not least in line would be a full body push pull would probably be the best for building muscle but I enjoy and have the most fun on a full body program. So I personally believe uh, we get uh, kind of create better sensitization to these things too. I know Mike Israel is a big fan of like cycling different things, whether we're talking about volume and intensity or we're talking about exercise selection, anything. So ramping up volume for eight to 12 weeks, ideally 12, maybe even 16 weeks with like an upper lower split to go or push pull legs, whatever it is, where you're doing a ton of volume, focusing on building muscle, and then taking at least four, but up to eight to 12 weeks, doing a full body program, focusing on movement quality, strength, recovery, stuff like that, athleticism, movement quality, and then coming back to the muscle building, I think that's the most advantageous. So if I have somebody that's working with me for six to 12 months, I'm alternating between the two every 12 to 16 weeks. If their main goal is hypertrophy building muscle, then I'm doing more more total time throughout the year doing an upper-lower style split to focus on hypertrophy, less time doing a full-body movement-oriented split, but I think it's important to implement those in. I think that's going to create more sensitization to those upper-lower high-volume splits. All right, uh, last one. Easy. Favorite cheat meal. Favorite cheat meal. I thought about this a little bit harder after I answered it. The first time I answered it, I said – I, will, I would do fried chicken. My grandma's fried chicken, and it's what we all in my family choose for our birthday dinners. If we all, it's like a tradition. Everybody in the family gets their birthday. They get a birthday dinner at grandma's. She makes whatever you want. I, and I said fried chicken, but I thought about it harder. And I'm actually going to say this. I don't even know what you would call it. So we usually just do chicken or steak on the side. So this is like a side dish, but it's my favorite thing. So I guess could, this could go with fried chicken. But Shannon makes polenta, which is like a uh, – 
it's a starch, but it's cornmeal. It's like an Italian dish. She makes really good polenta. And then she makes this. She takes like like yams, so like orange potatoes, onions, bacon. She cooks all this shit in the bacon grease and Brussels sprouts and cooks those up with brown sugar and then puts that on top of the polenta. And it's literally like sweet and salty, crunchy. It's it's unbelievable. So my favorite cheat meal is Shannon's bacon, onion, brown sugar, Brussels sprouts on top of polenta. (laughs) 